good to be with you this evening. It's good to be with you in the month of December. The secular Christmas song tells us that this is the most wonderful time of the year. Well, this is a very special time, but the fact is that it's Jesus who makes any time of our year most special. Take him out of this time of the year, and this part of the calendar is no different than any other part that doesn't have anything in particular that is happening, perhaps like August. But this time of the year is so special because of Jesus. On our way back, we visited the town of Frankenmuth, Michigan. Frankenmuth was established by German immigrants. They were specifically sent by the pastor of a German church to settle that area and provide a witness for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so it's a town that in its architecture is Bavarian. You drive down Main Street and everything has this old world look to it. It's quite a tourist area. But one of the things that's distinctive about Frankenmuth is this huge Christmas store. It is billed as the world's largest Christmas store. It is acres and acres. When you walk in, not only is everything obviously Christmas, with lights and ornaments of every kind from all over the world, but there are also nativity figures everywhere, small, large, plain, ornate. And as I was walking in and looking at all of this, I was thinking, I don't know how many people here truly know Christ, whose birth we celebrate here at Christmas. The reason for which this store was established, it was established, by the way, by a Christian man, and for the very emphatic reason of celebrating Christ as the reason for Christmas. But everyone who walks in that store and everyone who looks around will see these figures, will see the nativity scenes on display. Also on the grounds, there is a chapel and that chapel was built as a representation, a replica, of the chapel that was erected after the song Silent Night was written. The church where Silent Night was written and first sung burned to the ground. And later on, this chapel was built to commemorate the song that Austria gave to the world. And on the grounds there at Frankenmuth, where this Christmas story is, is a replica of that chapel. And as you are walking up the path to the chapel, the words of Silent Night are written in different languages, like signposts, one after another. 
I looked for all the languages that are represented here in our church. I saw the languages of people who have come and gone from different nations as a part of Moravia here at different times. Just dozens and hundreds of languages. Inside there was a list of languages yet to have a translation of Silent Night, Holy Night. Many people pass through this chapel. You can sit there and meditate and the melody of Silent Night in various kinds of performances is being played over and over again. The story of Silent Night is displayed. All of the words of the song are there. And once again, everyone who passes through is going to encounter a witness, a testimony about Jesus Christ. I couldn't even begin to imagine how many thousands of songs, carols, have been written throughout the centuries in recognition of who Jesus Christ is and his mission in coming to earth. When you add to that the sermons, the books, the stories, the plays and dramas and cantatas that have been written, I wonder if it numbers in the millions. Because the story of Christ and his mission of coming is the greatest message. It predates the creation of the world. For Revelation 13 tells us that Jesus Christ is the lamb that was slain before the creation of the world. That representation of who he is and what he came to do will exist long after this present heaven and earth has been destroyed and replaced by a new heavens and a new earth. And we're going to reference a verse of scripture a little bit later. This is the greatest message. And in one way or another, the world is being presented during this month with this message of Christ's coming. They may not perceive it, but they will not be able to deny it when they stand before the Lord of eternity. So perhaps this is the greatest time of the year. When most prolifically, the story of Jesus and his mission of salvation is being told throughout the earth. One of the things that we are going to do through this Advent season is explore some of the songs that were written for this time of year. Look a little bit at their background and look at the scriptural message. We're going to begin tonight with one that is very familiar to us. But it's also one in which we rarely find all of the verses that were originally composed as part of this song 
O come, O come, Emmanuel. This comes to us from the 12th century. It's a Latin hymn. No one knows who authored it, but it was originally used in the medieval church liturgy as a series of antiphons. Antiphon is, it can be a psalm, a song, a canticle, but it most often references a responsiveness that is sung. We have had responsive readings in church where something is said by the one who is leading the reading of Scripture, and there is a response by the congregation. So that gives you an idea of an antiphon. And it was sung as short musical statements. And O Come, O Come, Emmanuel was sung in the week of Vesper services or evening services just before Christmas Eve. Now remember that back in this time period, there were no printed Bibles. Any copies of Scripture had been inscribed by scribes and were only held by a few people. Most of the people were illiterate. And so truths of Scripture were told through songs. And in the song, O Come, Emmanuel, each of these antiphons greet the anticipated Messiah with one of the titles prophetically ascribed to him in the Old Testament. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before the coming of the Messiah, prophetic words were being inspired by the Holy Spirit. Moses spoke. The psalmist spoke. The prophet spoke. David wrote prolifically about the Messiah. And God spoke concerning David's greater son, the one who would sit eternally upon David's throne, whose kingdom would never end. In 2 Peter chapter 1, the Apostle Peter wrote, We do not follow cleverly invented stories when we spoke to you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. Remember that Peter was one of three who were there on the mountain when the transfiguration of Jesus occurred. This is the event he is referencing. And Peter went on to say, And we have the word of the prophets made more certain, and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. 
Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Peter ties together the prophecies that were spoken through the prophets throughout the Old Covenant and the revelation of Jesus that occurred with his birth and with his ministry. The dawning of this light in the darkness. The coming of the one who had promised. These were no ordinary projections. This was the Holy Spirit making known, causing the spirits of prophets to anticipate something that would be far beyond their time by hundreds of years and multiple centuries. This was God planning towards the fullness of time. When the Messiah would come, when the revelation of God's heart and God's mission of salvation would be made known to the world. This song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, draws out a number of these Old Testament prophetic names that were anticipated and would be fulfilled by the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Names like Emmanuel, Wisdom, Rod of Jesse, Key of David, Dayspring, Desire of Nations. The melody to O Come, O Come, Emmanuel is one of the earliest forms of sacred music. It's known as the chant or the plain song. This coming Sunday, we are going to be singing O Come, O Come. Emmanuel. We're going to look at some of these names together this evening, and I pray that the Holy Spirit enables you to see the richness of Scripture and how Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that God was planning and prophets were anticipating. As I was thinking over this study this evening and thinking over these names that come from the Old Testament, I was wondering how many people in our church could list these names, would recognize them. I was wondering how many of our young people could give a list of these names from the Old Testament as prophetic proof that Jesus was no ordinary man, but that he was the promised one of God. May our eyes see the prolific wonder of Jesus and the fullness that God has intended for us because Jesus is the fullness of deity in bodily form. The first verse of this song, 
O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lowly exile here until the Son of God appear. This name, Emmanuel, comes from Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. For the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Now you and I need to appreciate what is taking place here. This name Emmanuel was given over 600 years before the birth of Jesus. Spoken through the prophet Isaiah, it was spoken during the reign of the kings of Judah. Now, Isaiah's ministry transpired over several kings. And it was well before the invasion by Nebuchadnezzar, well before the exile that destroyed Jerusalem and made Israel captive in the land of Babylon. But hundreds of years before the birth of Christ, and many, many years before that time of captivity, there was an anticipation of one who would come, whose birth would be miraculous, and who would be named Emmanuel. For the centuries afterwards, the Jews anticipated the coming of the Messiah. That fervor, that expectation was at an all-time high when Jesus came. And as Matthew records his gospel, the good news of Jesus the Christ, or Jesus the Messiah, Matthew records for us in chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, all this took place, speaking of the events of the birth of Jesus, from the appearance of the angels until the time that he was named Jesus. It took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Hallelujah. You and I have the fulfillment of this scripture. It is our experience day after day. When we come together in prayer, whether it's at 6.30 in the morning or 12 at noon, or one of our evening prayer calls, we have the promise of Jesus that wherever two or three come together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. We have the words of Jesus as he spoke to his disciples and sent them out into all the world. Surely I am with you to the very end of the age. 
we have the question of the Apostle Paul, what can separate us from the love of God? And his declaration, there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We have the writer of Hebrews affirming the promise that is greater than any amount of money, any financial security. What is this great promise? I will never leave you or forsake you, says the Lord. He is Emmanuel, one of the greatest promises, one of the greatest names that could be given to us. God, God is with us. The second verse says, O come thou wisdom from on high, who orderest all things mightily, to us the path of knowledge show, and teach us in her ways to go. Now, one of the things that we see as we read Solomon's Proverbs is that wisdom is personified as a person and presented to us in feminine representation. Wisdom calls. She cries out. Solomon also tells us in Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 19 that by wisdom the Lord laid the earth's foundations. By understanding he set the heavens in place. Psalm 33 tells us that God spoke and commanded and the heavens, creation, came to be. In our sermon on Sunday, as we were looking at John chapter 1, we saw that through the Word, who is God, all things were made. And without Him was not anything made that was made. God spoke to Job and asked him, where did I get the wisdom by which I made all of these things? Can you understand these? Can you count the clouds? Do you have the wisdom to do so? By wisdom, the Lord laid the earth's foundations. By understanding, he set the heavens in place. Later on in Proverbs, Solomon said something that is repeated in Proverbs, presented to us in the Psalms and elsewhere in Scripture. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. In Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 2, a messianic passage, we read these words, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, upon the Messiah, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 30, the Apostle Paul wrote, It is because of him that is God that you are in Christ Jesus. 
Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. In Colossians chapter 2 and verse 3, the Apostle Paul is speaking about the mystery of God. It's a word that he has already used in his letter before he gets to this point. And he has just spoken about his effort, his struggle and labor, so that everyone under his ministry, whether they have met him or have not, would have the complete riches of understanding so that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. This is why Paul said, we teach and admonish, we struggle and exert ourselves so that we may make Christ known and may present everyone perfect in Christ. Christ is the wisdom of God. He is the riches of knowledge, treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The wisdom and knowledge by which, the God, by which God made the heavens and the earth all of the intricacies of nature, the food chains upon which multiple things are dependent one upon another, the fascinating aspects of the human body. Christ is the wisdom by which God made it all. Jesus, who was submitted to the will of the Father, Jesus, whose reason for coming was to do the will of God. I delight to do your will, O God. Jesus, who said, I have come to make the Father known. It was his mission. It was his work to reveal the Father. If you see me, you see the Father. If you hear my words, you hear the words of the Father. If you honor me, you honor the Father. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. You and I cannot know God the Father without knowing Jesus. Jesus must be our ambition. He is the complete knowledge of God. He is everything in God's eyes that is worth knowing. He is the source of all truth. He is the way for us to understand God, to understand the will of God, and to be able to live a life that is pleasing to the Lord. It is why the Apostle Paul counted every other career and professional success that he had attained to be worthless in light of knowing Christ. Because Christ is 
the wisdom of God. And you and I need the complete riches of understanding this mystery, Christ, in whom is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Another name ascribed here in Isaiah chapter 11 is Rod of Jesse. It's one of a number of names that we find in this chapter. And the song says to us, O come thou rod of Jesse, free thine own from Satan's tyranny. From depths of hell thy people save, and give them victory o'er the grave. Rod of Jesse. This reference from Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 1 reads, There shall come forth a rod from the stem or the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Now, this idea of a stump goes back to the prophetic message that Israel would be cut down. A stump would be left. But God would keep his covenant promises. And a rod would come from that stump. A branch would grow out of his roots, the roots of Jesse, the father of David. David to whom God made a covenant promise that there would be one who would sit upon his throne, whose reign would be everlasting. And though Israel would be cut off, God's promise would not fail. Now, there is very interesting imagery here. In this name, as well as in this verse of the song, in Ezekiel 20 and verse 37, I will take note of you as you pass under my rod. And I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. Now, if you and I go back to Psalm 23, one of the things that the psalmist said to us, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. The shepherd carried a rod and a staff. The staff was used for the sheep. It had a crook on the end of it. And with that crook, he would draw a wandering sheep back toward him. The rod was used to protect and to defend. And the sheep would also pass under that rod as the shepherd counted them. When you and I look at the New Testament, there is a number of scriptures that you and I can allude to and respond to. But there are several things here for us to connect. First of all, we go to one of Jeremiah's prophecies. In chapter 23, verses 5 and 6, Behold, the days are coming that I will raise to David 
a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteousness. Hallelujah. So connected to this idea of a branch is the concept of righteousness. This one who will be a covenant descendant of David corresponds with the concept, with the character quality of righteousness, but not just any righteousness, the righteousness of the Lord. Now, it's in Romans that the Apostle Paul is making a case for the utter depravity of humanity, the inability for any man, any woman, to present themselves as having worth before God. Instead, by our sinfulness, we make ourselves utterly worthless in the sight of God. It is impossible for us to be right with God. All have sinned, he declared, and fall short of the glory of God. But then he declared that a righteousness from God has appeared, a righteousness that brings justification. And for all who have faith and put their faith in the work of Christ, they are justified. That is, they are made righteous. We read earlier the words of the Apostle Paul to the Corinthians, that Christ has become for us wisdom from God, our holiness, our righteousness. This branch, this descendant of David, would be the Lord, our righteousness. And the Apostle Paul goes on to say that to those who put their faith in Jesus Christ, God has imputed the righteousness of Jesus Christ. His sinless perfection is credited to us. And in Romans chapter 5, he writes these words, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Grace that reigns through righteousness. He is the Lord our righteousness. He is the one by whom we are justified. It is his merit that allows God to respond to us with grace and in place of our unrighteousness to give us the righteousness of Jesus Christ because we have put our faith and trust in Christ as our substitute and our Savior. There's one other thought that takes us back to Ezekiel 
chapter 20. In John chapter 10, Jesus presented himself as the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. And he said, my sheep know my voice. I call them, they follow me. He is the shepherd who brings us into the bond of covenant. Nothing will ever pluck my sheep out of my hand. My Father and I are one, and nothing will pluck them out of my Father's hand. Talk about a bond of covenant. When we belong to Jesus, when we are bound to Him, we are bound to Him by covenant. Covenant that was established by the infinite merit and power of His blood. And nothing can pluck us out of the hand of our Good Shepherd. Praise God. O come, thou dayspring, come and cheer our spirits by thine advent here. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night, and death's dark shadows put to flight. Now these words, this concept of dayspring, was spoken by Zechariah. When his mouth was open, his speech was restored at the birth of his son, John. Remember, because of his disbelief when the angel appeared to him in the temple, he lost his ability of speech. He only received it back after the birth of his son. And in his prophetic song, he spoke these words, that his son John would be a prophet that would prepare the way of the Lord. Through the tender mercy of our God, with which the day spring from on high has visited us, to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. This idea of dayspring is compatible with the rising of the sun, the light that comes in place of darkness. In Malachi chapter 4 and verse 2, but to those of you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will arise with healing in his wings. 400 years before the coming of Christ, the dawning of the age of grace, the light shining in the darkness was prophesied through Malachi by the Lord God. The sun of righteousness shall arise. Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world, who came in to this world so that those who walk in darkness would no longer be unable to see the way of truth and the way to God, will remain that light, the greatest light, for all of eternity. In Revelation 22, 
after John has seen that the current heavens and the present earth has been replaced by a new creation, the creation of a new heavens and a new earth, as Peter said, wherein dwells righteousness. John wrote what he prophetically saw. In Revelation 22, verses 3 through 5, And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no night there. They need no lamp nor light to the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Aren't these wonderful words? Words of destiny. These words help us understand a bit of what it's going to be like as you and I experience eternal life. You and I will enter into a new heavens and a new earth where everything is right and where righteousness is the norm. Where everything is in such a way that it reflects the infinite excellence and perfection of God. Nothing wrong. Nothing broken. No death. No sorrow. Nothing incomplete, nothing that falls short. There will not be any need any longer for hope or faith. Because everything will be perfect. There will be no need of the sun. You and I will not need a lamp. The God who dwells in unapproachable light, in whom... There are no shadows, no darkness, the God who is complete revelation. You and I will see him and experience this incredible glory, this unbelievable light that is God himself. And we shall reign forever and ever with him in his presence, illuminated our lives, the creation of this new heavens and earth, the will of God, the glory that will be displayed all around us, illuminated by the light of of our Lord. John tells us in his prologue that in him was life and this life was the light of men. And you and I will live in the light, the life light of our Lord forever and ever. And even today, you and I experience Jesus and his light. We experience the light of his truth, bringing us out of the darkness of this world and the darkness of unbelief, the deception of the adversary into his light. 
We experience his word giving us understanding. We experiencing his presence lifting our spirits, illuminating our hearts. This is a wonderful truth. The son of righteousness has risen and you and I walk in his light. No doubt you can think of many scriptures throughout the New Testament that reference Jesus as light and how we walk in his light. And it's my hope and desire that out of our little study this evening, your own heart will desire to search through the scriptures and find more references to these titles from the Old Testament that are fulfilled in our Lord. O come thou key of David, come and open wide our heavenly home. Make safe the way that leads on high and close the path to misery. This is a reference to Isaiah 22 and verse 22. The key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulder, and he shall open, and no one shall shut, and he shall shut, and no one will open. You and I can think back to Isaiah chapter 9, where it speaks about the increase of government will be upon his shoulder. And so there's a reference here to the government of David, to the kingdom, the authority that this descendant of David would possess. He would be known as the key of David, for he would possess that key, the key of the kingdom, the authority of the kingdom. In John chapter 10, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. John chapter 14 and verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We could spend time here in the Gospel of John, especially in John chapter 5, with this idea of authority and what has been given to Jesus. Jesus would talk in John chapter 5 about doing the works of the Father, of the authority that the Father had given him to give life, the authority of judgment. Whoever believes in me has crossed over from death to life. The apostles would proclaim that there is no other name given under heaven by which we may be saved. The apostle Paul would proclaim the exclusiveness of Jesus as the way to salvation. No other gospel, he alone is the way. He alone has the authority it is his work of salvation, it is his name that opens the door, the way to the Father. The writer to Hebrews 
tells us that it is through Jesus and his work that we can come boldly to the throne of grace. He is our great high priest. It is through him, he tells us in Hebrews chapter 10, and his sacrifice on our behalf that we are able to enter the most holy place, passing through the curtain that is his body and coming with hearts full of assurance. Into the very presence of God, the most exclusive and the most forbidden place, it can only be accessed through Jesus Christ. He alone is the way. He alone can give the authority for you and I to enter in. In his letters to the churches in Asia Minor, in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, Jesus dictated these words to the Apostle John. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. Jesus is quoting words to identify himself to the church at Philadelphia. Words that come from Isaiah 22. He is the key of David. He is the one who opens the door of salvation. He is the one who has the authority to determine who can enter in and who cannot. This identity and these words have particular meaning to me. I've shared with you previously the story of how my father had come to the end of his time in Bible school and it was graduation and he had been asked by different ones to come to this district or consider pastoring here or planting a church there. And he had visited a little community at the behest of one of his colleagues in southern Pennsylvania, York County. And at his graduation, there was a message in tongues and an interpretation. And this reference was part of it. These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. And my father felt called of the Lord to go to this community and pioneer a church. And when he went to this community, he found one church. It was a Methodist church that had been closed. And when he saw this church, the door was standing open. And he remembered these words from his graduation. The door that I open, no one can shut. When they inquired about buying the building, they were told, it will not be sold to any other 
congregation outside of another Methodist congregation for a certain number of years. But when it went up for sale, he determined to bid on it. They were sealed bids. He met with his presbyter, both of them having decided what they would submit for a bid. Absent any conversations with each other. And they would share that number when they got together. When they met together, they both had the identical number. They submitted that amount for a bid. When all of the sealed bids were opened, theirs was not the highest bid. And they were not a Methodist congregation. But the Holy Spirit had spoken a word that the Lord of the harvest can open a door that no one can shut. And so, the Methodist hierarchy sold the building to the Assemblies of God. And my dad established Woodbine Assembly of God. He opens doors that no one else can open. And he shuts doors. And when he shuts them, no one can open them. A final verse. O come, desire of nations, bind in one the hearts of all mankind. Bid our sad division cease, and be thyself our King of peace. We have two pictures in this verse, desire of nations and King of peace. And they both go together. This word picture, desire of nations, comes from Haggai, chapter 2 and verse 7. Haggai was one of the post-exilic prophets. When the people of Israel had come back to Jerusalem, the altar had been rebuilt, the priesthood had begun offering sacrifices, the work for the temple had begun, but it had not been finished. People had built their houses, but had neglected the house of the Lord. And it was in that context that Haggai came to rebuke them and exhort them to be strong and finish the work of building the place of worship. And in the midst of that proclamation, he spoke this prophecy, I will shake all nations, and what is desired by all nations will come and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. Now clearly, Haggai was speaking beyond the current setting in which he prophesied. I will send my messenger, Malachi chapter 3, who will prepare the way before me, Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. Now, we have a couple of references so far. We have one who is desired. He is a messenger of covenant. He is desired by all nations. 
He is a temple. He is a house. In Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So we have a number of word pictures and a number of concepts that are here. As you and I go to the New Testament, we read the words of the Apostle Paul in chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. In who? In Christ. And through him to reconcile all things to himself whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now, we have read that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. And now we read that all things are reconciled through him, that he brings peace to all things, whether things in heaven or things on earth. Peace is made through his blood. The Apostle Paul elaborated on that when writing to the Ephesians, and he said, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. He went on to say in verse 16, In one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. So, in this prophetic anticipation, is this picture of the one who is desired by the nations. Or as it is told to us in prophetic reference and fulfillment in Matthew's Gospel, he is the one in whose name the nations put their hope. The one desired by the nations. The one who will judge the nations, the one who shakes the nations, the one who brings hope to the nations. He is the one by whose blood John heard sung in Revelation chapter 5. He purchased people from every tribe and language and nation and made them to be a kingdom and priest to serve our God. He is the one who is the glory of God. John said in his prologue, We beheld his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus declared as he cleared the temple, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. 
The glory that was to come that Haggai prophesied was not for a building, but it was Jesus Christ himself. The true temple. The glory of God revealed. The one who would be the hope of the nations. The one through whose blood people from every tribe and language and nation would be brought near. Every dividing wall of hostility destroyed. Made one in Christ. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Colossians and he said, In him there is no Jew or Greek. Civilized or uncivilized, Scythian, barbarian, male or female. But Christ is all and in all. We are made one in Christ. That idea of temple and house is carried further by the Apostle Paul in writing to the Ephesians. When he said that we are God's temple, we are the place where God dwells. Christ is the chief cornerstone and the prophets and the apostles are the foundation and we are the dwelling place where through his spirit, God resides. It is a beautiful picture of who we become in Christ. The one who is desired by the nations, oh, that I could be right with God. Oh, that I could be acceptable to him. He is the one by whom we are brought near. The Prince of Peace by whose blood we have peace with God. We have reconciliation with the judge of heaven and earth. He came and preached peace to you. Who were far away and peace to those who were near. Admonishing the Colossians to put on the clothing that identifies them as dearly loved children, as holy people of God, as followers of Jesus Christ, he said, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts since as one members you were called to peace. And so this concept is inseparable. The one who is the desire of nations, the one who is the prince of peace, the one by whom all things are reconciled to God, the one whose blood makes us one with one another, and one in Christ. You and I are called to one body. We are called to peace. We are called to submit ourselves to Christ. We are called to submit ourselves to one another. We are called to do everything possible to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Because that is a primary characteristic of who Christ is. And the work that he has done, preaching peace and reconciling us through his blood shed on the cross.
There was so much that was anticipated in the Old Testament. And the prophets searched intently and looked eagerly to understand the one whom they were prophesying and the glories of the Christ whose sufferings they were predicting. You and I look back and we see the wonder of who Jesus is. All that was anticipated has now been given to us. For in Christ the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and you have been given fullness in Christ. Everything that was anticipated in the work of Christ to accomplish an infinite salvation and an infinite righteousness on our behalf, it is yours, it is mine. These are the gifts. This is the inheritance. This is the fullness that you and I have been given in Jesus Christ. But Father, I thank you tonight for this opportunity that we have had to see Jesus. Oh, how many ways, Holy Spirit, you were revealing him as the one in whom the fullness of deity would reside. The one who would come and provide every answer to every need that we have. And the one who would come and reveal all of the glory of God, his infinite excellence and worth. Our provision, our fullness. Father, we thank you for Jesus tonight. We thank you that he brought everything that the fullness of deity is. He revealed it to us. And you have given us fullness in Jesus Christ. Thank you that his righteousness Infinite and perfect is our justification. Thank you that his name above every other name is the authority and sufficiency by which we pray. Thank you that his destiny is our destiny. His infinite everlasting life is our prospect of eternal life. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would give us the same sense of value concerning Jesus as was possessed by the Apostle Paul, that we would count everything in this life as nothing compared to knowing Jesus. Draw us closer so that we might see him better. We pray in his name. Amen.